Mac Power Users, episode 655, streaming check-in with Julia Alexander. Hello, everyone. This is David Sparks. I am joined today, as always, by Mr. Stephen Hackett. How are you doing, Stephen? I'm good, David. How are you? Uh, I am great. And we have a guest today that I've really been looking forward to talk to. Uh, welcome to the show, Julia Alexander. Thank you guys for having me. I really appreciate it. How are you guys doing? You know, I just couldn't be better. <laughs> I mean that. I mean that all the way, all the way down the stack. <laughs> That's good. That's good. Yeah, we're uh, we're good. Fully back in back to school season around here. So uh, a little nutty, but it's good to uh, sit down and talk. We got some some good stuff to talk about today. But before we get to those things, David Sparks, I opened the Mac app store the other day yes, and your beautiful face was smiling upon me. Yeah. Wasn't that great? That was fun. Yeah. They, they asked me a few months ago to share some shortcuts and answer a few questions. I'm like, sure. And, uh, didn't really think much of it. And then one day I looked at the Mac app store and there I was sharing some shortcuts looking cute. Yeah. That picture was from my, when they did the feature on me three or four years ago and they sent like a team to my house. Like right. I had like, like I was like a movie star for like four hours that day, and they uh, they used that picture. So I I can't take picture uh, credit for the picture. But there I was <laughs> staring some shortcuts. I was curious about that because I remember when you were on the App Store last time, like a, a team of people descended on your house with. Didn't they say they came with like clothes that fit you, and you had yes? A, like how do they know? Yeah, they they came with clothes that fit me, Stephen. I'd never met these people before, and then. They had a thing because my my studio at that point was on the second story in an extra bedroom, and they had a reflector on like a thirty foot pole that they could stick out the window. I mean, these guys, these guys, Stephen, I don't know, man. They had it together, yeah, professional. But apparently, they they kept the negatives because they uh, they put a picture of me in the app store, and it was really fun. I think I shared seven or eight shortcuts that I used for productivity. They're all pretty basic. I didn't. I didn't want to make it super complicated for, you know, app store people, but uh, go, we'll put a link in the show notes. You can download them and check them out. But some of my favorite productivity things for shortcuts on the Mac. Thanks. I, I forgot. I forgot about that. It, it even happened, Stephen. I'd already moved on. <laughs> yeah, I just opened it. I was like, oh, hey, hey, buddy. You know, it's it's like uh, maybe y'all have experienced this where you round the corner in the grocery store and like you run into an old roommate or something. You're like, oh. This is completely out of context, but here you are. Yeah, and I have like kind of my Peter Pan stand there, like I'm going to take on the world. Yeah. I, I look way more confident than I actually am in that picture, so you can take <laughs> I, that. That's, that's good. Uh, yeah. Today on More Power Users, which is the longer ad-free version of the show, uh, David and I will be talking about uh, the current status of the betas. We're, y'all, summer's almost over. I mean, it's the end of August, and so we're going to, Check in on how we feel about that. We could be talking about new iPhones in two weeks, which is hard to believe, uh, but that'll be there for members at the end of the show. Now we get to talk to our very special guest. Uh, Julia, you are, you're all over the internet, I feel like. Uh, so uh, you have uh, a show here on Relay called Downstream with our friend Jason Snell. Uh, mm -hmm. You work for Parrot Analytics. You write. Uh, tell folks a little bit about you. 
Yeah, I, I all over the internet is a very nice way of, um, I think, describing pure chaos. So I appreciate <laughs> it. But yeah, I um, spent, you know, a, a decade in media kind of as a reporter, as a writer, as a um, content strategy person, and then moved last year over to the business development side. Um, where I'm a director of strategy over at Paired Analytics. And we're a media research firm that helps a lot of top tier streaming companies um, and production companies with navigating what is a very confusing and rapidly changing space. Um, and kind of using all that knowledge, I got to talk to Jason for, I can't even remember which podcast he was hosting at the time. And we, were, we, did, we did a streaming episode. And from there we said, wouldn't it be fun to do a streaming podcast? And Relay and us came together uh, and developed Downstream, which is a bi-monthly, I guess, bi-weekly, every two weeks. Every yeah. two weeks, there's there's a um, a Downstream podcast episode where we talk about what's going on within the world of streaming. So that's kind of, kind of me in a nutshell. How did you end up in the world of covering this stuff? I think I first came across you when you were writing uh, maybe for The Verge or Polygon, yeah. sort of in the Vox media world. But... Uh, I assume most people just don't wake up one day and decide they're going to talk about streaming for a career. So how did you end up where you are? Yeah, so I was uh, one of Polygon's first, I was actually their second ever entertainment hires. They were, this was back in 2015, they had decided that they were going to add entertainment coverage to their um, already stellar gaming coverage. And so I kind of went in and helped them build that section. And I was doing a lot of reporting. I was doing a lot of blogging, you know, in 2015, just a lot of writing in general about one, you know, just television shows and movies that we were watching, but two, like the kind of changing landscape that this was happening in. And as I was building up the section alongside Susanna Polo, who is their comics editor right now, brilliant person, uh, we were spending a lot of time in Google Analytics. And I was spending a lot of time thinking about these things like churn and, you know, what would we, I would now describe as customer acquisition and the kind of laborious and also financial costs of bringing in an audience and, and, and really determining all these things. And I didn't think much of it at the time, but I really enjoyed it as I was writing about all these different things. You know, why was Netflix canceling Sense8 if we remember when that happened? You know, like why were all these things happening? Then I got a little bit burnt out and I pivoted away from entertainment um, and got really interested. This would have been around 2017, really interested interested in the changing creator uh, economic landscape happening at YouTube at the time. This was, of course, pre-TikTok. This was, you know, just kind of post-Vine, but really everything was kind of happening on YouTube. And so I started reporting on what was happening with YouTube creators. And I'll never forget, it was um, New Year's Eve in 2017. I'm at home, you know, with with my roommate uh, preparing to go out for New Year's Eve. And I click on this video from Logan Paul and he's in a forest. And I'm like, this video, you know, even if it's fake would violate a lot of YouTube's terms. And so I send out a request. I say, Hey, you know, I know it's New Year's Eve. I don't mean to bother you guys, but I don't know if you've looked into this or if there's any response to it. You know, at the time I had just started covering creative culture at you at, at polygon we weren't really sure we were going to cover you know mainstream creators we're kind of focusing on gaming you know twitch streamers and youtube streamers and, and those kind of type of creators and uh well <laughs> a day later uh logan paul is like the number one trending topic the, the very idea of how creators are being paid for the type of content that they're being you know effectively by youtube to be paid um being paid for to create um how that influences 
millions of other creators in a multi-billion dollar company's um, infrastructure, whatever it might be, suddenly became a mainstream topic in a way that it wasn't before. At the time, it was like myself and Ryan Broderick, um, who used to be at BuzzFeed. Now he runs Garbage Day, a great newsletter. Taylor Lorenz, who at the time was at Daily Beast. Now she's at Washington Post, you know. Um, a bunch of people at BuzzFeed, BuzzFeed had, uh, and Vice had great internet culture desks, but it wasn't really the kind of mainstream coverage that a lot of big publications were looking for. That changed everything. And so I moved away from Polygon, which was still a very general entertainment and general gaming website, uh, to The Verge, where I worked with um, Nilai and Dieter and their teams, and we really built up a creator desk. And I did that for a long time. And through that, I really got to learn about the fundamentals of cross-platform distribution and the idea of servicing fan and the idea of not just putting all your eggs in one basket and, and kind of the economics that drove the creator economy, you know, the idea of this demand for attention or the idea that that attention dominates everything, right? Mm-hmm. With this whole attention economy. Really, I learned about in depth while covering covering creators. Got a little burnt out on that again, which reporters do. Reporters get burnt out on beats. And at the time, The Verge had a streaming uh, desk that was mostly tech-focused. They had an entertainment desk that was covering TV shows and reviewing TV shows and doing interviews, and they were really talented reporters. And they had a really great – they still have a really great tech team. Um, And so Chris Welch, who's a stellar reporter and editor over there, he was their kind of go-to guy for, you know, looking at the tech aspect of streaming. You know, why can't things stream in 4K or whatever it might be on that end. And I came into it, and I was like – I feel like the fundamental hows and whys of the way we watch television and film are irrevocably changing at a speed that our brains cannot comprehend, that like we don't even know what to do with. And we're not really covering that. And the, the example I always bring up when people ask about this is we had a great meeting. It was myself and my coworker, Haim, who's a brilliant, who was a brilliant reporter at The Verge. He's um, since moved on. We had a meeting where we were talking about how to watch Harry Potter and we were sitting in the newsroom and this wasn't even a meeting. This was just us like talking. <laughs> and I said, well, I think it's on Peacock because they advertised it. And he said, yeah, but I think it's on HBO Max because they advertised it. And we Googled it and it was on neither. And it was the, actually the only way to watch it, despite both of them having advertised this, the only way to watch it was on NBC channel linear reruns. We were, and and Heim was like, why? Why is this the case? Like, this is what streaming is supposed to fix. You're supposed to have this a la carte, beautiful future where we had everything at our fingertips. And now suddenly things are changing. Mm-hmm. And we wrote a blog, which you do, right? You blog. I wrote a blog about, like, effectively what was windowing. I was like, here's the issue with what's happening with Harry Potter. This huge franchise that two of these massive conglomerates are sticking their kind of future on in many ways. And now all of a sudden the only way to watch is, like, via sci-fi channel reruns or whatever it might be. And that story did insanely well for us. You know, both in terms of like actual readership, which is always great, but also in terms of like people really interacting with it, people asking more about it, people asking for follow ups. And I was like, oh, there's something here. There's people are confused about how they watch things and and why they have to watch things the way they do. So I went to Neilai, who's still the Verge EIC, who is easily the the best boss I've ever, you know, truly worked with. I love all my bosses, but Neilai is this rare type of genius. And I said, I want to cover the hows and whys of this, like just this. And he said, you know what, let's go for it. Let's Let's try doing it. You know, it worked out to be great. This was just before like Bob Chapek takes over for, you know, for Disney. This is right before, uh, for excuse me, for Bob Iger. This is right before Disney buys Fox. This is right before Warner Media is effectively becomes a thing under, you know, AT&T post the Trump stuff and then it's gets, gets sold. So it's a really great moment actually in general from a business perspective, from a news perspective, from a cultural perspective to have this, this, this idea of a desk. 
And the thing I realized was I really enjoyed talking less to the executives and more to the strategy, financial planning and analysis and content programming teams. And I was like, how do you guys fix this issue? Here's the issue. How do you fix it? And this led to two or three different types of conversations. The two that I most frequently had were talking to the programming team and we'd go back and forth on effectively what I, what I refer to as content affinity. The idea of like this movie or this TV show might do really well for us in viewership, but you know, the economics of streaming really reiterates, okay, well, does it help us with the referral value? Like what does it help bring people to the other TV shows that are on HBO Max? Does it help with discoverability? Does it keep a high risk um, customer from from um, canceling. Like I learned about that really well. The other conversation I always had with different strategy people, and these tended to be more senior um, executives, it always came down to me being like, um, I don't know what this means. And they would explain it. And I'd say, no, 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 dumb it down. And they would explain it. And I'd say, no, 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 dumb it down. And they'd get to a point where they were really frustrated, but I finally understood it. And I was like, well, you've earned your MBA. This is really exciting for you. Like you've proven that that $60,000 did not go to waste. And I have learned this. So from there... I, uh, last part of this in my, in this ramble, I started a newsletter. Um, I was really intrigued about what was going on with Disney. Uh, you know, they were launching all these things and I wanted to write more specifically about that. And it wasn't really for the Verge audience. And I wanted to do it weekly and in depth. And so I launched a newsletter on Substack. It was the Substack era called Musings on Mouse. And every week I just wrote in depth about something that was really interesting to me about the way Disney was approaching streaming or was approaching their business as a whole and 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 kind of with the strategy in mind. And eventually a couple of executives reached out and said, you know, there's companies, including ours, that will like pay you for this. Like the <laughs> stuff that you're asking, the stuff, the, the the data, the third-party data you're using, you know, you could have access to actual data and, and really help with those decisions. And then and then jokingly, well not jokingly, but you know, they were like, also you'll get paid more, I imagine. And you know, that's always a nice thing to hear when you live in a big city. And I kind of sat there and I, I was talking to my my partner and I was talking to my parents and I was like, am I ready to give up media? Like, am I ready to kind of give up reporting and, and doing content strategy and building right. sections and, and doing this thing? And I was, I had hit that point where I wanted you to go on, go to the other side and, and, and really try that out. So when I left, I had a few different offers, but the one that really stuck out to me was this company, Parrot Analytics. And I like them because they are at the forefront, alongside with some other companies, of this race to determine, you know, one, kind of how we, I think, uh, we appraise the value of content by two, looking and redefining, looking at and redefining how we measure the success of content. And for me, that was always the heart of the question. You know, why, what is this? How do we know it's a hit? In 2022, how do you know it's a hit? What What does that mean? And so Parrot, you know, allowed me to kind of come in and build a team to help our clients figure that out, to help ourselves figure that out. And so that's kind of where I am now, is helping clients and trying to determine how they can, you know, be successful in this world, while also spending my days researching and asking questions about what is a hit? What 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 is the measure of success? And then how you know how do you build a business, a sustainable business off of it? It is funny, right? Because when I was a kid, you know, TV was two or three channels. We had Nielsen ratings, and everybody knew what a hit was. But like, I have friends who are content creators who have done stuff for Netflix and some of these networks, and they'll tell me that it is hard to get any kind of data out of these companies, like. How do we know it's a hit when all these streaming services don't really say much publicly? I mean, that's, that is the inherent question. You know, if we look at a bunch of different stories just happening across the media landscape over the last month and a half, right? You've got, of course, at the big, at the top of this, you have Warner Brothers Discovery calling 50 different titles from its platform and the conversation around 
those titles being called, they're effectively a conversation about what is the value of those shows. You know, what is the um, uh, cost to value of those titles? And if there's no, if there's less value, that's inherently an engagement and viewership thing, and or it's a referral thing where people are not really watching anything else, and the engagement is still low, and we don't know. We 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 don't know what that actual number is because. It doesn't make sense for the companies to give that number out. It doesn't make sense for them to give it out publicly because then now they are writing potentially a bad um, PR train. It also doesn't make sense for them to give those numbers out to their creative partners because hypothetically, if the show is doing well, uh, they don't want to pay more than they have to for that show. So if we're thinking about the negotiation table, why tell a producer they have a successful show on their hand when you can say, hey, we we know we really like it. We think we can champion it. We're going to offer you this price. Producer has nothing to come back on. Producer and the creators have nothing to say like, oh, yeah, well, we know it's got that, you know, it reaches this demographic or it has this many viewers or it managed to stop, you know, this percentage of customers from from canceling. They don't know that. You know, it's why the biggest conversation in Hollywood right now is on the legal side. It's on the contract side. It is how do we build in you know, and redefine the back end payments, which effectively is like, you know, what they get, it's like a residual, right? Like what they get over the course of a year to three years to five years, whatever it might be, when we don't have this information. And I think there is an opportunity for third party companies, not just, you know, for others to really come in and, and help reestablish the foundational fairness that used to exist, I think, in Hollywood when, you know, Nielsen was king with linear, when, you know, the box office was king with theatrical, and now things are shifting because distribution is shifting and because audience is shifting. One aspect of this conversation that doesn't get brought up enough, and it should, is that the data that we are using and what these companies are using is inherently flawed for two reasons. One, The first set of data we were reliant on came from Netflix. Netflix operated a monopoly for years. Netflix operated a monopoly based on content that it had from its partners. We're now pulling that content back for their own streaming services. Um, It's really difficult to say this is what the future of streaming looks like if it's one company relying on creative partners to really create this foundational streaming service that people use globally. Like that's, you know, it's, it's almost ideal for consumers to have that, but not great for the market. And so we're seeing, you know, a fair market um, uh, really become established as all these key players bring their content back to their own streaming services. But two, all of if we think about when these streaming services launched, it was either mid to late 2019 or early 2020, which means all the data they have for their streaming success is based on a, an unprecedented change in, in in human behavior because of a right. pandemic. It's the Peloton so going, problem, right? It's it's yes. you're in a market that exists in a very unusual time that is not going to exist forever. Exactly. And so you have a lot of these companies say, hey, we know there's a pull forward, right? We know that we're seeing a lot of this success right now because people are stuck at home. But it also means that if you're trying to determine the value of something based on two to three years of data, and and if you're trying to really project the next five years based on that two to three years of data, it's an inherently flawed set of data. And so it's really difficult to kind of make decisions about like what's a hit or what is really valuable to your streaming service or what what these things might be if the way that people are engaging with their content at home changes month to month to month over the last two years. And so I think, you know, to your point, it's like we don't have an answer for it. I think a lot of it, well, we as in the public, we as in the creatives, the, the, the companies have an answer for it. We do not have that answer. Um, but I think as 
the unions really start to push back as the lawyers and the agencies start to push back. And then again, as companies like Parrot and other companies come forward and offer this kind of meaningful insight into the value or the viewership or the um, just inherent demand uh, for these types of, 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 for this type of content, we'll start to have more of those answers come out so we can actually say, yes, this is a hit. And yes, this is valuable because X, Y, Z. This episode of Mac Power Users is made possible by 1Password. One 1Password one is the app that I trust to keep all of my logins, bank information, secure notes, driver's license information, basically anything that needs to be secured on my devices lives in 1Password. There's a new version of 1Password out for iOS, and I'm a big fan of the, the home screen of that app because you can rearrange and add things. You can pin things to that home screen. So you know, a really common thing is uh, seeing the most recently modified or created entry. And before that, that wasn't so easy when you were on the go. And now you can just add that to the homepage and it shows up as a little section. I can very quickly get into it. Uh, I'm a big fan of the customization that has come to one password for iOS. I use one password at work with one password for teams. I have different one password vaults that different coworkers, different people within Relay FM have access to. And I can manage all of that information centrally with 1Password. Of course, it works across all of my devices, all my different browsers. It works with Face ID, Touch ID, everything you would expect to make accessing your passwords and other secure information easy on the go or at your desk. I love that it uses the built-in uh, keyboard autofill system on the iPhone and iPad, so you're not going around and copying and pasting. It doesn't inter interfere with your workflow. And on the Mac now, autofill works uh, basically anywhere. So instead of just being in the browser, you can log into applications and other things with 1Password anywhere on macOS. Learn more at onepasswordcom slash MPU. You can sign up there for a free 30-day trial and you get 20% off. Once again, that's onepasswordcom slash MPU. All right, Julia, we got you on the Mac Power users, so we got to talk a little bit about tech. I, I, and I do have more about to ask you about streaming, but just um, I know you're a big Apple user. How did you get into Apple? Um, I think like so I'm you know, I just turned 30. I think like a lot of people my age, I have a very um, uh, foundational experience of, of mem or memory rather of sitting in a movie theater and watching Legally Blonde. And she's got <laughs> the, 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 the orange clan book, right? Like it's that Mac with the iBook, I think, right? Yep. She has yeah. she has that and she's typing on it on the treadmill. And I just remember leaving the theater and being like, Wow, that was a great movie. Also, I need that computer. <laughs> like, I was like, I was like, I was like, I remember leaving and like badgering my poor father. You know, we were a PC household because PCs were affordable or, or at least more affordable. Um and at the time, the only reason, you know, my dad's whenever that movie came out, the only reason my dad had a computer at all at home it wasn't even for the internet, although we used it, it was like for Excel. Like it was basically like, hey, you know, I, I need to have Excel and PowerPoint, and, and so we had these computers. But for me, it was like, oh, like it's sleek, it's pretty, it's colorful, it's simple. Like everything about that product for me was like, oh, wow. Then, you know, it was like the iPod, right? Like it, I, everyone had an iPod. And for me specifically, it was, I can't remember which generation iPod it was, but it was the, maybe the fourth generation. It was the one where they had the slim one and they were colorful. So like that, that like nice, slim, colorful iPod. And there was, there was a, a green version. And I know that the Apple fans listening are going to um, hate me for this because I don't know the official color of it. But it was like a forest green. Mm -hmm. And that was like 
my favorite thing ever. And then when I was 16, I really wanted the 80 gigabyte iPod classic. And I was like, I can't afford the, cause I was 16. I was like, I can't afford this. And all my friends chipped in and got me that, that iPod. And I still have that iPod. Nice. And I was like, this is, you know, just like the sound of the wheel when you would put your thumb over it. Like it, it was just the fact that it could hold everything. Like you never deleted anything on that. And you were just like, had all this stuff. I, everything about that was my early entrance into Apple. Um, really. But you and know- I loved it. Something that stands out for me there is it mm-hmm. was the colors, right? The yes. vivid colors. And like Stephen and I talk about this all the time. They've got away from that. You know, we got it with the iMac last year, mm-hmm. but we got new MacBook Airs that don't have those colors. It's like such a missed opportunity. Like, you know, some somebody that's 12 years old now should be watching something on streaming with some cool character that's got an orange MacBook Air, but they don't make them. Why is that? You got I mean, if anyone's going to know, do you guys have any insight into like why they moved away from color? Is it just because the ones they have now are like sleeker? I got no clue. I got yeah. No clue. yeah, I don't know. Because they do it with some stuff, right? The iPhone comes in a bunch of colors. The iMac is in a bunch of colors. But a lot of people were hoping this new MacBook Air, which is awesome, was going to return to that. And they just they just didn't. I, I don't get it. It's so weird because literally my I use the uh, I have three monitors, two monitors and then like my laptop monitor Um, and I use them. They're just Dells, like whatever. They're cheap and they do the job and it's fine. But one of them broke and I very much was like, just get an iMac. Like, so this is the time. Like, is this the excuse now where I'm like, you know, I don't need it, but like, I want it and I can justify this maybe. Um, it's the way that you do with any Apple product. You're like, you know, I don't need it, but I can justify the cost of a few thousand dollars somewhere. And the only reason I wanted that iMac though was because of the colors. It was like, man, these are gorgeous. And that pink one, especially, I'm like, I just want to have this sitting in my apartment. Like, it just looks good. Um, and to your point about the new MacBook Air, which I just got, I got the new M2 MacBook Air, and I love it performance-wise. Like, it's absolutely great. But I got the gray, like the the bluish gray, the, is it space gray? Like, I got that version. And oh my God, the fingerprints. Yeah. Like, oh my God. It's, I touched, like, it's, it's I'm like, I don't understand how it's so bad with this. And I loved this computer, though. It's great. It's just like I can see my fingerprints everywhere on it. Yeah. David is slowly covering his with stickers to alleviate that problem. (laughs) (laughs) It it is baffling. I mean, we keep talking about it, and I don't have an answer for the audience. But it just seems like last year they made the colorful iMac. In fact, you saw it, and you decided you wanted to buy one. I feel like there's a lot of people like you out there. and. Then they made a new MacBook Air and they made it gray. They made it like three shades of gray and one shade of kind of white. So I, I don't really know. <laughs> I don't know. Man, I don't know what happened there. Maybe. Uh, it's so weird because I think, you know, to to your exact point, um, David, it's, you know, one of my, if, if you had asked me my favorite Apple product right now that I use that I could not live without, it, it's not my iPhone. It's not my MacBook. It's not even my AirPods. It's my, it's my Apple watch. It is like uh, the Apple watch for me is my favorite Apple product in the world. And the thing about the Apple watch is they do colors. Mm -hmm. (laughs) They like, whether it's the band, but even just like the, the actual watch face itself, like it's beautiful colors. And then of course the bands let you kind of customize. And when I think about Apple, like it's a really good point, David, that you brought up, like, yeah, my earliest, I didn't even think about this. My earliest memories of these products are the colors and like the vibrancy of it, especially compared to like the ThinkPad, right? Which everyone had. It was like the ThinkPad with like the little red ball in the middle, but it was black. Black, you know, square or rectangle type thing. And then Apple came out and it was like, wow, color and 
fun and personality. And that's what I always associate it with. And my Apple Watch has that. My phone has that. Um, even my iPod case, which is not official, but my, excuse me, my AirPod case, which is not official, but like, that's fun and it's colorful. And then it's like, oh, but man, the MacBooks themselves, at least for me, just I, I would kill for a little bit more color thrown in there, and even the iPhones. But at least like there's, you know, if you go with the green or um, the teal one they came out with, I think for the iPhone 12 or 13, that version, like that was a great color. And it's just, I just want to see, I think Apple have more fun again with colors, but also I would, I would also settle for just, you know, not having my fingerprints all over them. One, one or the other. <laughs> well, well, one way to solve that is like they make, there's a company called D brand and there's a couple other competitors that make um, like big um, stickers that like you can literally change the color of your computer with just a, a big sticker. And it's a little bit of a pain to apply them, but, but it can be done and you can change the look of it quite significantly. And then you avoid the fingerprint problem. But but I'm with you. I, I feel like that was a missed opportunity. I was really hoping for an orange one. I just wanted an orange MacBook so bad. But right? they you know, they didn't make one. But, they, but I want to get back to your watch because I didn't I didn't realize you're a big Apple watch person. Um, which watch do you wear and what are your favorite bands and faces and what do you do with it? So I think I have the Apple Watch, the most recent one. Is that the six or seven? I think it's a seven. I picked it up. This is actually, you know, credit to where Tim Cook wants to go with Apple products. I got COVID in January, uh, early, late December, early January. I went the Omicron one and everyone got it. And, you know, it was fine. Like it was a mild case. It was fine in like six, seven days. No big issue. A month later, I'm getting insane heart palpitations, like insane. Go to the hospital. I'm thinking I'm dying. And they're like, your heart's great. You know, like it's concerning, but your heart's great. Like there's no issue with that. And the doctor there said, do you have an Apple watch? And I said, no. And I, he's like, he's like, I think you should think about getting one. He's wow. like, cause the nice thing about the Apple watch is like, it's not perfect. He's like, we're not, we're not you're not going to hear a doctor say like, this is going to replace going to see a, a licensed healthcare professional. He's like, but it will alert you if your heart rate spiking and it's, it's weird. And there's like a weird AFib thing going on. It will tell you to then go somewhere. And I was talking to him about it. And, you know, I was a reporter. And I was like, does that happen often? Like, do you guys get that? And he said a lot of the patients that they see come in because they're like, my Apple Watch told me to come in. Something's weird. And he says about like 20% of them, he's like, something actually is up. And we can, we get, we can look into it and it's really great. He's like, 80% of the time they're like anxious and like their heart spiked. And the Apple Watch is like, all right, I don't know if you're okay. He's like, but we'd rather have, you know, 80% come in and we tell them, listen, you're fine. You can go home and, and, and have the 20% really who do actually need help and weren't aware of it. And this watch is like, Hey, something reads off about your, your heart rate. I don't know, or your, your um, EKG or whatever. You should go in and get this checked out. And so I bought the app watch for that reason. You know, I started getting back into working out and I, I, and I started, um, and I, and I was worried about my heart. And so I bought the Apple watch and I bought it. I use it mainly for health things. I have yeah. all notifications on it turned off except for Slack. No text, no emails. It's really for like if people need to Slack me and I'm out and it's important. Like I can see that. Not because I always have my phone on me. Um, I don't have the LTE version. It's like straight up just connected to my phone. But from the health side, I find that A, it encourages me to work out more because I um all my friends have Apple Watches. They're all – well, all my friends were Apple Store employees at some point, which is very funny. And so they are huge Apple diehards and they all got the Apple Watch. And we actually do use it to like send each other exercise stuff and it encourages us to work out. And so we have like, we, we call it like the Apple Watch workout group. And it's like, we just have that to spur us on. So I think I love it because I forget about it. It sits on my wrist unless it vibrates. I, I don't know it's there. 
it gives me peace of mind with my heart stuff, which has gotten much better as as what happens with long COVID. Um, it's gotten much better, but it also now is the reason I think that I go and work out because it like, you know, gamifies working out. It's like, here's your badge. And I was like, Ooh, it's like Pokemon. And so I go <laughs> and do this thing and, you know, and then to your point, David, like, you know, what do I use? Um, I use this one typeface. I don't even know the name of it, but it kind of looks like a classic traditional analog watch face. I like that it looks, it kind of blends in. Um, I used to use the the photo ones because I would take photos or I would download photos of my favorite like actors or just characters from TV shows. And I would like recycle, I would cycle through those. And then <laughs> I reminded myself that I was 30 and I was like, this should probably not be a thing that I do. <laughs> um, and then in terms of the band, I'm really a big fan of the Nike band with the the holes like that one. Yeah, same. And I... And I and I have the purple leather one because I went with the rose gold watch base. So I use the purple one when I'm in meetings or if I just want to look professional. And then I really want they're like $350, like clearly designed by Johnny Ive as a Johnny Ive want, <laughs> like like Apple Watch band. But I again, every time I think of buying an Apple product, I don't know if you guys have this in your because with you, I'm always like, okay, I have to find a way to justify spending the money. I have to wait on it. I feel like, oh, okay, now I can justify it. And I haven't gotten to that point yet with that with that band. But soon, hopefully, I will have a reason to get the nice band. I'll tell you that um, I'm going to give you some advice you're going to regret me giving you, but Amazon has great Apple Watch bands that are less expensive which is good in theory, but then what happens is you end up, they start collecting like triples and then suddenly you have a lot of watch bands. And <laughs> that's kind of my experience with that. But the, uh, yeah, the, the heart thing is real. We talked about this on the show recently, but I had a good friend who ended up having to go in for surgery because, you know, his watch told him there's something wrong with his heart. And like within 24 hours, they had a zipper in him and wow. the, uh, his doctor told him, yeah, that, that pretty much saved your life. If you hadn't come in, you know, you weren't far off from, from a big, a big problem. And I guess that's really a thing. I mean, you, you hear the stories, but, um, having doctors tell people to buy Apple watches. I mean, that, that kind of tells you something. Well, and it was funny. Cause my, my dad wears one, my dad's 75 and he, I bought him one cause and I bought him the LTE one because, yeah. uh, for the fall protection stuff, yeah. Um, and I was like, cool, like, I just want you to wear this. He loves it. He went from being a PC person to retiring and then getting very into Apple products, but like at a, at an alarming rate where he texted me one day and he's like, I'm going to buy a HomePod. And I was like, why? He's like, I don't know. <laughs> I'm just going <laughs> to buy a HomePod. And I was like, okay, cool. Like whatever. So he drives my mother insane. But then he texted me. He's like, I'm going to buy an iMac. And I was like, why are you going to buy an iMac? You don't do anything. And he's like, yeah, I know, but like, I just really want one. And I was like, okay, I mean, well, you're Apple's favorite customer. I don't need this, but I'll buy it. And, um, but he's, he's had the same thing. He went in his, it was, something was told him was wrong with his heart. He went in and, um, he was mostly fine, but they did find something. And they were like, you know, what? we're going to keep you overnight. We're going to check into this. And, um, my, my, my partner, a guy named Kevin, he used to work as an Apple genius for like five, six years. And, this would have been years ago, years, years ago. And he, um, Tim Cook had come to New York and was doing like a Q&A or something, sit down with some of the employees. And they got to ask questions. And his question was, you know, what do you see as the as the future of Apple? And this was before, just around the time the watch came out. So like the first watch, like this was around then. And Tim Cook was like, health. 
He's like, he's like, I, and, and all the employees are like, oh, really? Like, I wouldn't think of Apple and health, but Tim Cook was like, I think health is like where we see, because wearables we think are the future in a lot of ways. And so we think health is this really important area to break into. And I think like, it makes a ton of sense now and, and having, and obviously like having that foresight with him and with his team is, is, was really, really impressive as is a lot of the Apple foresight. Um, but yeah, I think like everyone I talk to who gets the Apple watch, few of them are like, oh, I get it because I need to be closer in, 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 in um, closer contact with my like messages or emails. Everyone I talk to gets it is either like I work out and I like that I can track it and I can push myself with it. Um, I work out and I like that I can get my Apple Fitness Plus, like all this fun stuff. Or it's like, yeah, I have health issues and I like that it can track certain things. Yeah. I mean, you want to get a loyal customer, save their life, then they are a loyal customer. <laughs> you know, I mean, very good point. That is uh, something that Apple Watch can do for people. And, and, but you also, when I hear your answers though, fashion does play a role. I mean, you're picking the metal and you're picking the bands and I, I, you know, I think that continues to be something for Apple and, and hopefully something they keep on mind as they develop future products. This episode of the Mac power users is brought to you by text expander. One of my favorite automation tools for the Mac text expander is a text replacement tool. You know, you type something like C C E L L and it types out your cell phone number for you. It saves you time. But Text Expander is so much more because it is built around automation. With Text Expander, you can run Apple scripts. You can have fill-in fields so it can fill in the name of a recipient for an email. It even has things like the tab key so you can write into your expansion snippet the ability to navigate through fields in an email form or on a web form. Not a day goes by that I don't use Text Expander to automate and quicken my time at the keyboard. It's like a get out of jail free card for your fingers. You just type a few letters and a bunch of text just goes right into your document, your web form, whatever you're doing. Text Expander isn't just on the Mac, though. It's also on Windows, Chrome, iPhone, and iPad. And they also have Teams versions, so you can get Text Expander in your team. So you can write the snippets for your customer service folks, and they always send exactly the right message. With Text Expander, you can automate, you can simplify, you can send a unified message. It really is a very powerful app. It's a great way to get started with automation. And both Stephen and I are big fans of the application. Like I said, I use it every day. To learn more, head over to textexpander.com slash MPU and sign up. You'll get 20% off your first year because you listen to the Mac Power users. That URL, one more time, is textexpander.com slash MPU. Go check it out. You won't regret it. So I want to turn back to, to streaming a little bit and kind of talk at, at a high level of where things are right now. We mentioned a couple minutes ago, a lot of these services started up either right before or kind of during the you know lockdown stay at home season that we all experienced but now most of the world is coming out of that we have a lot of streaming services i feel like the icons on my apple tv like they're more and more uh, as time goes on and i want to know from your perspective again at a high level kind of where the uh, where the ecosystem is do you see uh, for instance do you see a retraction coming in the number of players in the market or you know prices continuing to creep up and people may consolidate what they're paying for kind of what's your take on that sort of thing yeah so i love this question and what i always like to do with this question is set the so set the the stakes on the table cuz all these companies are playing different games 
on the one side, let's say to the left, you've got NBC Universal, Paramount, Warner Brothers Discovery. I would say those three specifically. And they the their whole thing is that they are still doing well with cable. It is still a very profitable business for them, but it's declining. So streaming acts as a net. It, it is a way to catch subscribers who are cutting the cord and saying, hey, hey, why don't you guys come over here? We have all this content you like still, including sports and news, um, and we're going to offer to you at a discounted price, and, and you get to come along with streaming. We know that cable is declining. We know that broadband is increasing. The issue that they're facing is that the profit margins as a cable business are extremely high. We're talking like 20%. Like they're extremely high profit margins. The profit margins on streaming, first of all, are not happening yet for a lot of these companies. They're not profitable. They're spending a lot of money and taking on a lot of debt to try and become profitable by about 2024, 2025. But the suspected profit margins for a streaming are also not going to reach anywhere close to 20% for a very, very, very long time. So on the left, you have companies in the middle of an identity crisis. They're in the middle of a very important transition. They are in the middle of an irrevocable transition. Um, and they also need to support both areas, right? So they're kind of the legacy media company of yesteryear attempting to become the legacy media company of tomorrow. On the far right, you've got Apple, Amazon, Netflix. And I include Netflix in there because it's really Netflix exists on its own. But it's if we want to, if we want to treat them like a tech company, we'll put them with the tech companies. <laughs> um, Netflix is kind of, you know, the only one that's majorly profitable. It's the only one that is entirely in on streaming uh, as a company that's its own, it's, its own business. Um, but it's also kind of trying to figure out how it becomes something more. And the reason that I put that with Apple and Amazon is because for Apple and Amazon, you know, Apple TV Plus and Prime Video are incentives. It is a way to incentivize people to join a bundle or a much larger service. And if you're Apple, it is that plus, you know, iMessage, which does a much better job of this, plus, uh, you know, extra storage, plus whatever it might be, you know, Apple Arcade or, or Apple, TV, whatever it is, ideally, brings you into the, both the Apple One bundle and you're using services, or two, when you're upgrading your phone and your your MacBook, ideally, it stops you from going and getting a Pixel or whatever else it might be. Does, you know, we'll get into this a, a little bit later with Apple TV Plus, you know, is that doing a great job for Apple now? I would argue no, but uh, that, that's kind of the idea. For Prime Video, you know, one, it's a huge incentive for the e-commerce business where e-commerce is the main priority. That's areas like the United States. It's really established regions. Um, Prime Video also, though, is the main uh, is, is one of the main drivers of customer acquisition in territories and regions where e-commerce is not as big of a thing, in part because of legal uh, issues, in part because of shipping issues, in part because that culture is just not there. Prime Video acts as this way to be like, hey, we have this really big, you know, Lord of the Rings show, whatever it might be. Um, and we think this is a great way to bring new customers into the and keep them paying month after month. So those are those. And then in the middle is Disney, right? This company that is already very much involved with becoming the the, the legacy company of tomorrow. Like they're already in that path. They're thinking about the metaverse. They're prioritizing streaming over linear. They're doing a bunch of stuff to kind of become this mainstreaming giant. And they're, you know, they, they have, they certainly have the subscriptions to prove that they're already there. But they have all these very strong ties back to the linear side that they're trying to figure out. You know, so if we think about how N NBC Universal has Peacock, but also they're very committed to NBC, like they're not going to do anything with NBC for a very long time. Disney 
nothing is concrete. You know, what happens to ESPN? Do they sell ESPN? Do they make ESPN a straight direct-to-consumer offering at 30 bucks a month in three years? Who knows? Do they, what do they do with ABC? Does, what does ABC become for Disney, right? Like all these different questions are not as concrete as like, well, Paramount has CBS and CBS will continue to carry football. And that makes sense. And like CBS is, is where it's going to be for as long as it's going to be. Disney is kind of this company that's like already closer to the Netflix, Amazon, Apple side, but with enough strong ties and enough revenue and profitability from the, from the left, from where all the other legacy companies are, that it can't just give it up entirely. Uh, so, you know, they're circumventing Comcast and they're circumventing all the other kind of carriers. And they're saying, why should we give you customer information when we can use it? And we use that to sell park tickets and we use that to figure out what merchandise to go into. Right. And, like they have all these other businesses. Yeah. Can I, I just want to focus on Disney for a second because they're interesting to me. Um, my uh, my wife works for them. So there's some disclosure to the extent, you know, an hourly employee needs disclosure. But the um, the uh, but I'm also just interested in what they're doing with Marvel and Star Wars and mm. and also like traditional children's content. And when you were earlier saying that a lot of these uh, legacy companies on the left haven't made online pro- or uh, streaming profitable for them yet, where does Disney stand on that? Are they profitable or are they still kind of in the build out phase? The direct to consumer, as of this most recent quarter, Disney earned five billion dollars on the revenue side from direct to consumer. That includes um, ESPN Plus and Hulu and Disney Plus Hotstar. Um, but they're negative. You know, they're one point one billion dollars in, uh, in uh, at a loss on the operating income side. So it's not profitable in the way that we think about like Netflix being profitable as a company. And they just kind of you know they became profitable a while ago, but they just kind of started generating free cash flow not too long ago. Um, so no, like they're still outspending kind of what they're bringing in. I think they're closer to being profitable than the other, all the other ones. I think they'll be profitable by, you know, they're, they're planning fiscal year 2024. They think they're still on, on the path for that. And I think they'll probably hit it. But I think what you asked David, is the most important question, because what you're asking is what Wall Street has pivoted to asking. If we think about how we viewed the success of streaming over the last five years, three years with competition, you know, eight years with Netflix, everything was subscriber growth. The reason that we at one point valued Netflix as a $750 stock when it should have been a $150 stock was because we said this thing is growing at an insane rate and no one stopped to be like, well, that's because they're the only company in in this market, but sure. Um, it's growing at an insane rate. And actually, because of its algorithm and because of what they're doing on the tech side, it is more in common with Google, Facebook, Apple, and Amazon um, than it does anything else, uh, you know, than it does with like Disney and Viacom at back in the day or whatever it was. Beca- except that what they argued was that, okay, this algorithm makes it a tech company. Google and, all, and Facebook and all of them have arms, right? They're an octopus head. They have their various arms that are very, very important that they generate their own strong revenue and they have their own different algorithms or they have they have their own different you know spot in like the business dynamic and the business model of these companies and when all those arms come together like as an octopus you get a really powerful creature netflix does not have arms netflix has netflix is an arm it is a media company in that way you know there's all this debate about is netflix an entertainment company a media company a tech company it's everything and all in between but really in the way that we value it and which is the question it's it's, it's, it's an entertainment company you know it, it it has less arms than disney does it has one specific arm and the minute that you introduce competition into it which is what's happening now you start seeing the declining aspect of the power of that one arm right like it starts to get tired because it has to compete with all these other arms in the water now 
We don't know where this analogy is going, but it's fine. We're going to make it work. <laughs> it's a little upsetting. <laughs> no, it make, it makes sense, though. I Actually, I it, it helps me understand because you're right. I mean, Disney has theme parks and all this other stuff it does. And, you know, on the right side, Apple and Google, they have a lot of ways they make money. And um, Netflix has the only way it makes money is that you give Netflix money to stream shows, many of which are licensed and don't even belong to them. Exactly. Now and now the companies are saying, hey, I want my toys back. Exactly. And so, you know, it's kind of where the scene is set. This is where everyone is operating now. So the, the next inevitable question is always like, okay, well, who survives, right? Who survives? Who doesn't? Uh, the, the, the comparison I always like to make or the story I always like to bring up is when HBO launched in the 70s, the first thing HBO ever aired was a hockey game. I believe it was between the New York Rangers and another East Coast team. Uh, when was the last time you saw an NHL game on HBO? You know, what HBO was, it took HBO about 20 years for, before HBO went from what it was, you know, then it went into its boxing moment, it went to its comedy moment. And then by the mid to late 90s, all of a sudden you have Sex and the City and The Sopranos, The Wire, Oz, all these shows come out. All of a sudden, what HBO we know as today really emerges in 1997, far, far, far after this NHL game is aired and like Pete's dragon is like streaming for the 10,000th time or, or playing for the 10,000th time on HBO. The same thing happens with FX. When FX launched, it was a way for Fox to kind of dump syndicated programming into and generate stronger ad revenue. And it was kind of soulless and lifeless for a long time. And then in 2005, a guy named John Landgraf comes around and has the shield and has some other shows. And all of a sudden this network that no one really knew what it was becomes FX becomes this like, you know, an FX and HBO are the, arguably the two most prominent brands in entertainment that took them years to get to. So it's very funny to me that in a lot of the headlines you see, a lot of the conversations, people want to declare a winner already. And you see this all the time with Apple, where they're like, Apple TV Plus. I remember within the first year, everyone was writing like one year in on Apple TV Plus. Like, is it successful? I was like, you can't judge a network if it's successful in one year. They've ordered like eight shows. Like, it takes them a year to like figure out if they're going to do another show. And so I think why recommendation I always tell people is like, you got to give them five years. You got to give them a moment to develop their identity, to kind of prove that they can do programming, to prove there's audience interest, to prove that that audience interest can be translated into monetizable customers. So I think with that said, okay, who's going to be around? Let's, let's, let's play the game. I think, I mean, as long as there's children, Disney Plus is pretty successful. Right. As long as kids are happening, well, like, ch children and children and nerds. Let's let's be exactly. honest. <laughs> exactly. I mean, I used I don't have kids. I use Disney Plus because I love Star Wars and Marvel. And so as long as that keeps happening, that's great. If we think about the general customer base for a Disney Plus, like if you've got kids, it's a really easy thing to purchase, especially at the at the time when there's all these headlines about YouTube being really knocker. And we know kids love YouTube. We know it's where they're gravitating towards. But if you're a parent, you're kind of like. I'm going to invest in Disney Plus for $8 a month because it's safe. And I know my kids like it. And also I might like Star Wars or Marvel. And so it works out. Also, the Disney bundle, it's why they pivot. It's why they um, It's why they um, advertise the Disney bundle so, so, so much. You know, that's that Hulu. It's the SPM Plus. The churn rate on that is like 2.2% monthly. It is the lowest in the industry. To put that in perspective, average churn, so the amount of customers canceling, comes in at about 5.2%, 5.3%. Disney is like 3% lower on the bundle. They Those customers come in and they do not leave. And so that's why Disney is very much like, this is great. We can charge people for this and, and we won't lose those customers. We can continue building our business. I think Disney's fine. Um, I'm a big Netflix bull. 
I think Netflix is going through a rough transitionary period. And I think they have to really shape up their green lighting process and be much, much smarter with the types of shows and films that they're they're picking up. I also think they need to branch out. I don't know if it's games, but I do think they need to branch out and figure out a secondary line of business that is also successful. But I I don't put it past Reed Hastings and Ted Sarandos, so they're co-CEOs and their teams, they have very smart teams um, to kind of figure it out. So I think they go through a really rough time for the next year, year and a half. But I do think they kind of kind of come back. So if we think of, you know, who's the third, you know, who would you put in that that third spot? Um, I always go back and forth between HBO Max and Paramount Plus. I think HBO Max, for all of the issues it's going through right now in the press with with what, you know, the new CEO, David Zaslav, is trying to do in order to, like, save $3 billion in debt or cut $3 billion in debt and then you know, really create a profitable business, which I is a very difficult thing to do. I give him a lot of credit. There's ways he could have handled things better, but I give him a lot of credit. Um, HBO Max is kind of this consistently in demand, consistently talked about streaming service for people between the ages of 16 and 50. And that's really great. That's a really core audience who you want. That's an audience that pays. That's an audience who engages and that's an audience who talks. Um, if we go Disney Plus, their audience tends to be much, much younger. That audience is also valuable, but they don't talk about things as much, you know, unless they're at daycare and they talk about Mickey. They're they're not out here being like, you know, I'm going to create TikTok edits about this thing and that's earned media. And Paramount, I think people question Paramount's position, but Paramount Plus has a lot of in-demand programming. So they get a lot of attention on their programming. It's home to some of the most, if we think also, if we think about what are some of Netflix's most watched shows, which are including a lot of licensed titles, 50% of them at any given moment are Paramount titles at some, especially on the film side. You know, you bring those back a little bit or so you have two strategy points. You can either bring them back and Paramount Plus really ideally jumps or you can charge three times what those things are worth because it's proven that they're really in demand. And you can go to Netflix and say, you really need these titles. I know you really need these titles and I'm going to charge you three times. That money goes back into Paramount+. Plus. Paramount also has Pluto, which is a free ad-supported streaming service. Um, Pluto is growing at a very strong rate. The advertising market is about to pivot to streaming and connected TVs and other stuff in such a way that it's going to be very va- a very valuable asset to Paramount, which again is going to create more investment to put into Paramount Plus and secure better shows. So I think those are kind of the four biggest. I also say those four specifically because they're the most global, mm-hmm. right? If we, th- we get really obsessed with the U.S. market in the way that we as a country get obsessed with the U.S. in general, Super small. In general, you're going to maybe tap out at 80 million subscribers. Maybe it gets to 90, 100 once cable really kind of the, the decline from cable kicks in. But right now it's about $80 million is your cap in the United States. Your cap elsewhere is like a billion people. Like, you know, internationally is where you're going to grow. And there's a lot of key markets, especially in Europe and in parts of the Asia Pacific region, where the average revenue per user that you're going to generate on a customer is can be close to on par with the US. And so you really want to focus your growth there. Those four companies have the potential to, I mean, Disney and Netflix have already proven it. HBO Max and Paramount Plus have the strongest potential to really go uh, to go global, which brings us to, uh, on this Apple um, Focus podcast, the two big, you know, elephants in the room, which is Apple and Amazon. What are Apple and Amazon going to do with these products? It's a hard question because we don't know anything about them. This episode of Mac Power Users is made possible by Indeed. We're driven by what ifs. What if hiring didn't have to be so hard? 
What if finding someone great would be as easy as asking them to apply? What if your dream hiring platform already exists? Well, it does, and it is Indeed. Indeed is the hiring platform where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. So instead of spending hours on multiple job sites, bouncing around, searching for candidates, Indeed is a powerful hiring partner that can help you do all of that. You can find great talent quickly through time-saving tools like Indeed Instant Match, Assessment, and Virtual Interviews. With Instant Match, over 80% of employers get quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed match their job description the moment they sponsor a job, according to Indeed Data US. And assessments are really great. With Indeed assessments, you can select the skills that matter to you the most. Add from a selection over 100 hard and soft skills tests to your job post that lets you home in on candidates with the right skills more quickly. Indeed is the only job site where you only pay for applicants that meet your must-have requirements. Indeed is an unbelievably powerful hiring partner, delivering four times more hires than all other job sites combined, according to Talent Nest 2019. So join more than the 3 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. Start hiring right now with a free $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at indeed.com slash MPU. This offer is good for a limited time. Go and claim your $75 credit at indeed.com slash MPU. Terms and conditions apply. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. All right, so we finished the last segment with the hard question, getting to our favorite fruit company and their streaming service. And it is such a different thing, right? I mean, everything we've been talking about in the last segment are media companies, companies that make their money selling media and creating and selling. Apple makes their money selling you your iMac and your dad his iMac, right? Yes. How how does Apple TV Plus fit in all this? We really have to acknowledge that Apple and Amazon are also playing a different with different levels of wealth, right? Like Apple and Amazon have more money than God three times over individually. If you combine them, um, you know, it's, 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 it's an unprecedented level of wealth and an unthinkable level of money to play around with that. All these other companies could not fathom, like they could not fathom having that. Now that doesn't mean that of course, everything that, um, Tim Cook and his team generate on the new iPhone is going to go to Eddie Q's team and they're going to say, hey, make another show, Eddie, here's a trillion dollars. But we have to acknowledge that because for Apple, the question I always have with them is if the goal is to sell more hardware or to keep people, actually just keep people integrated into the Apple ecosystem, not lose some of those customers and then and then bring on new ones. Apple TV Plus doesn't make a lot of sense, right? If we think about like Apple Arcade is exclusive to your your um, Apple device. I believe Apple Music is also exclusive. I don't think they bring they they've given that to like the Android stuff, but I could be wrong. You know, so you need your Apple device for that. You know, if we think about Apple News, like that's that's an Apple device. Apple Actually, TV I, Plus. I think is, that one. I do think that one is multi platform. But so it's multi platform, right? So yeah. so if we think about some of them that are um uh yeah so so some of them that are single platform like that makes more sense to me because it reiterates the importance of the hardware. Apple TV Plus is not. It's, it's, it's not singular to Apple. It is multi-platform. And so the only thing I can conceive of for success for the Apple TV Plus, a, a product, is to bring people in, one, just to Apple TV Plus, so generate revenue there. And two, 
to increase just services spend in general, which for me, I imagine it's Apple One. Like I imagine it's the bundle. I imagine it's this idea of like just the creating this additional brand identity that people associate with like prestige and like with premium is this idea of Apple TV Plus. And I don't know if they've accomplished that. I do know that what they have accomplished is exceptional. Apple TV Plus has gone from being like, this thing, everyone kind of was like, I don't I don't know why you need this. I don't know if it's going to be any good. Like, what does Apple know about entertainment? To producing some of the most in-demand and beloved shows for a lot of people, right? Whether it's something like Blackbird, whether it's Ted Lasso, whether it's Mythic Quest, which is my personal favorite, you know, whether it's Mosquito Coast, whatever it might be, there's all these Apple TV Plus shows, you know, the morning show Dickinson, that people actually know and are like, I know that that's Apple TV Plus. I, I, I signed up for the Billie Eilish documentary and three months later, I'm watching morning show, like whatever it might be. For Apple to do that in like two and a half years is exceptional because it's taken, we look at Netflix and you try to define what a Netflix show is or a Netflix movie. It's the biggest issue they have. You can't. You're like, I can name some, but I don't know what it is. Remember like a couple of years ago when Apple started playing with this and their big push was Planet of the Apps. They had a game show <laughs> <laughs> and we're all like, what is this? But you know, what, what you're saying makes a lot of sense to me. It's like, I feel like, Maybe what Apple's trying to do is not sell iPhone so much as reaffirm their position as tastemaker through media. I think that's a very, very good point. And that could just be it. And again, like that goes back to the wealth thing because they have the money to do it. They have the money to say, this doesn't even need to be a profitable business for us. This just needs to be, to your exact point, reestablish or continue to establish us as tastemakers, as premium, as prestige, as Hollywood's favorite go-to thing as, you know, and then in their shows, right? Like as these powerful, beautiful people using iPhones, using iPads, like, like, and that kind of surreptitiously doing that. Tim Cook sits at the Oscars. He sits at the Golden Globe table. He goes to the Emmys, like whatever it might be. It kind of reiterates that Apple is king, right? You know, you don't see Sundar, hanging out at the Emmys. You know, you don't see um, Satya hanging out at the Emmys. Like, they're just not there, right? I bet Mark Zuckerberg would love to go to the Emmys, but you don't see anything from Facebook Watch happening there. It's Apple, It's and it's and it's Amazon, and those are the two. And so for, you know, Amazon makes more sense. Like, it's it's everything is to incentivize the Prime video, like the Prime subscription. It is like, whether it's music, whether it's Twitch, whether it's uh, Prime video, whether it's retail, it is, hey, you know, shop here, subscribe to us and be part of the system. And that makes a lot of sense for, for Amazon. With Apple, I think you're right, David. You know, the, the more that I think about it, I, I mean, obviously they would love for it to drive revenue and profitability. They can, but the fact that they don't really break anything out, the fact that they're kind of like being very selective and cure and curative, um, curative with their approach to it. The fact that they've got some of the best talent in the industry on the executive side, working on those development deals. Um, and they're willing to spend, you know, like $25 million for Coda at Sundance was like unheard of. And then it won them the Oscar. Like, that type of stuff, I think, is really key to Apple. And so we really have to redefine the metric of success. And I think that's kind of been my talk, my thorough point through all my rambling on this lovely podcast is each service has a different level of success. And we as an industry have redefined what success looks like. We moved away from subscriber growth to revenue. We moved away from are you adding 10 million subscribers every quarter to, okay, but are you making money off them? How much are you spending on them? And with Apple, I imagine analysts are very much like, hey, are you making any money on these people you're bringing in? And if you're Apple, you get to say, hey, 
we're actually generating strong positive press. Um, we are bringing in some customers. I don't know what their numbers are. If I had to estimate, I'd put them at between 25 and 30 million. That would be my guess um, without knowing anything internally about them, um, which, you know, is not great. It's not it god awful, but it's not great considering they give it away half the time to people for like three months. But again, it is powerful, beautiful, talented people involved in these shows, using Apple products, working with Apple, bringing Apple up, doing press, doing their own conferences about Apple that adds on to the like sleekness and beauty of the next iPhone, of the next AirPod Max or whatever they do, right? It's the kind of idea of like Apple is this thing. And we are going to reiterate that through our services and also through our, our hardware because they can, you know, we think about Apple Music, right? They can't do anything really that Spotify can't do. Um, in the sense that they're all working with the same labels. They're all working with the exact same four music labels to get the exact same titles for the for the most part, for 99% of it. You know, they can do some stuff on the UI side. Here's a playlist making tool. Here's how we're going to curate stuff. But the the accessibility and availability of the, of the, the stuff on the product is almost one-to-one. On the TV side, though, they get to actually establish brand. They get to establish Apple Voice. And the only Apple Voice they've had up until, you know, the last decade was hardware. Mm-hmm. Everything about the Apple Voice came through in hardware. It wasn't software. I mean, it was. Of course, iTunes was beautiful. But it wasn't the idea of like, okay, well, now we have this Apple logo on this show. This is our brand. This is something that we think is is worthy of having the Apple logo on it um, on an entertainment side of things. I think that is just huge for them in general. Do, do you think that that's a factor in their lack of outside catalog. I mean, Netflix and Amazon Prime and a bunch of others, you know, content shuffles around, but they have a lot of content there that is from other places that they've purchased the rights to. Apple hasn't done that. Now they're, like you mentioned, Coda, they're out buying media, but I'm not watching reruns of my favorite early aught show on Apple TV+. Right. And I see, like, Stephen, that is the question about Apple, right? If they wanted, and let's let's be clear, if, if Apple wanted to be a key player in the sense of total subscribers and in the sense of total engagement. They have the money, again, to buy a library. They could have bought MGM, right? They could have bought, instead of Amazon buying it for, was it $9 billion or $5 billion? One of those, like either $5.9 billion or $9.5 billion. Um, they they could have they could have done that they could have approached um, Sherry Redstone at Paramount who's like very keen to sell certain things and be like we don't want CBS News or CBS as a play as a whole but we would love to buy like you know Paramount as a library we'd love to buy the idea of Paramount and really be invested in that kind of makes sense right Paramount was this king of old Hollywood App- Apple's king of of new technology like there's kind of a of a brand relationship there that you can kind of see happen they could have bought a bunch of stuff. They didn't. And they we don't know now whether or not they are in conversations, right? Until some reporter from the Wall Street Journal or Bloomberg breaks something like that, we don't know if they're actively looking to buy a, a library. I imagine that their very, very, very stellar financial planning and analysis team has looked into that alongside their strategy team. I imagine they've thought about it and have multiple meetings about it. The fact that they haven't done that. And the fact that the titles they choose to make are very specific, you know, it's like one, they, they tend to have big stars attached to them, but two, they're kind of projects that you could see sitting on an HBO, right? You could see sitting on a Showtime scene, sitting on an FX mm-hmm. really, I think demonstrates where they're coming at. You know, HBO didn't 
buy a library. They had pay one deals. And I think that's where we'll see happen with Apple more, more than anything else. Um, and a pay one deals like uh, if, if you guys who are listening remember the story, the headline of Netflix spending a billion dollars to have the Sony movies. Right? That's a pay one window. It means after they go to theaters, they get them exclusively for like eight to ne- eight, 10 months or whatever it is. Um, that's how HBO made a lot of its money before all the series started coming out. And even through that, it was like film that they had the pay one rights to. They weren't making it, but they were like paying Universal and like Disney for it. They're like, yeah, we will we'll just carry it. Like we're really happy to do that. And they built up their own, but those weren't HBO originals, right? They built up what HBO was. It was like, we are very selective with what we're doing because HBO is the brand and we want to build this brand awareness. The way that A24 is, the way that Focus Features did, the way that Neon does, like all these kind of film distributors and studios. And Apple makes a ton of sense to continue that. If we're putting our logo on it, it needs to pass a quality assurance test. It needs to pass the thing where we don't want to be called the CBS of streaming, like um, Kenya Barris, who created Blackish and Grownish is called Netflix, right? When he walked away from that overall deal with them to, I believe, go to BET or it might have been, I believe it was, um, I can't actually remember where he went. But point being, if Apple's putting their logo on it. It is them saying this is a quality assurance on our side, you know, and they're not always going to get it right, but they're saying, we think this makes a ton of sense for the Apple product. Um, They can buy a library, but then they take into like, well, these, you know, this, this exists on Apple. Do people associate it with Apple? Um, Or are they media aware enough to be like, oh, New Girl is a Fox show that I just watch on Apple, right? Most people aren't. Most people are like, I watch New Girl on Netflix, therefore, to me, it's a Netflix show. When it is not, it's a Fox show that streams on Netflix. And I think, you know, HBO spent 30 years being this company that had a string of shows every single year that was, you know, less than what the networks had, but was very specific in what they did and curated that brand and it became HBO. And I think Apple will likely do the same. There's just more attention on it from a global audience perspective. One, because streaming is just more fun to talk about than the business of linear television at, at, at the time as it was with HBO. And two, it's become a tech culture story. It's no longer a business entertainment story, which had a very small audience, you know, 25 years ago. Now it's like tech culture business all combined into one. Mm-hmm. And people really feel like they have their fingerprints all over it because they can, they know exactly where their money is going. They know when they're spending $7 or $6 on Apple TV plus like or $5, whatever it is. Like they know that that is something that they are keenly aware of. So they are very interested in what happens with that product more so than when you're paying $200 for cable and you're like, there's a channel, there's two Hallmark channels. Did you know there was a second Hallmark channel? Like you're like, I don't know, but I'm paying $200. So I guess it's there. <laughs> it, the perception of, of the of our, of the value relation between ourselves and our, our streaming services and our apps have changed fundamentally. And so with that comes the relationship we have to brands. And I think Apple is hyper aware of that more so than almost any other company. Especially with a company like Apple and, and Amazon where their streaming service, and you said this, but is part of an ecosystem play, right? That if you were using Apple TV plus, you probably have another Apple device. Maybe, and maybe you're like my brother and sister-in-law who keep stringing together Apple TV Plus trials as they like buy an iPad or buy a phone or something. I don't think they've ever paid for it and they've seen everything I ever asked them about on the service. It's it's part of the your overall computing life in a way that certainly cable over the air TV never was. Yes, I think that's 100% fair. And I think, you know, 
This is something that um, I'm a I'm a big fan of Jason Clark, big fan of David Zaslav. I feel like you have to say that or else people are like, you prefer one or the other. And they're both doing their jobs. Um, but I was really big fan of what Jason Clark was doing at, at, at Warner Media when he was there. And he always talked about this idea of like, you know, we say content is king and he's very much part of the faction that I kind of also belong to, which is audience is king. You know, you really have to feed your audience. And, and that has changed over the last 10 years from, you know, an audience into fans, into people who are, people are not just, you know, it's audiences for A24, they're A24 stands. Like that, like, people are not just watching um, uh, Succession and that's it in the reviewer. They're creating entire TikTok accounts dedicated to it. Like they are fans and it doesn't seem like a huge shift, but it it is psychologically, it is, you know, behaviorally. And so when you're, developing a streaming service of tomorrow, you're thinking about how fans are thinking about you. And if they're thinking about Netflix as this bloated kind of service, which again, I love Netflix, but right now it's bloated. And they're trying to think about like, well, I don't really know how I would describe it. And I kind of have it because it has some of my favorite things on it, but you know, I don't really think about it versus they'll tell you like, I, I love HBO Max because I love A, B, C, D, E. And like, I know you hear this all the time. You hear this all the time. People go, I don't know what this new HBO show is, but it's Sunday. And I assume it's going to be good because it's HBO. Hmm. That level of trust in a brand is so hard to come by. You see, on on uh, Wednesdays and Thursdays now, right? Like on Wednesday happens, people end up Disney Plus. They don't even know if there's anything new, but they're like, I assume there's a new Star Wars or Marvel show, and I'm going to open up Disney Plus. The fact that they own that Wednesday in such a short amount of time draws the ire of everyone in Hollywood, including Reed Hastings, who brought this up in an interview. He's the co CEO of Netflix. And he's like, I hate that Disney owns Wednesday. <laughs> like, and they don't they don't have to promote anything. They, I mean, they do, but they can, people just open it up because they know that the brand is. They know what that's happening at that. Apple is not there yet, but I think they're going to come into that position where the more Apple TV shows that come out that people really get to love, talk about, the more that you get into this position of HBO circa 1997 with The Wire, Sex and the City, Oz and The Sopranos, you know, through 2002, 2003, of like, don't even know what this next thing is, but I love those things so much that there's this inherent trust built into it. And then the more that you you repeat that, like HBO has done over 30 years, the it, the less that, that that customer acquisition cost becomes, you know, from a not a not a literal level, but from like a, a perceived level, because people are already in on HBO. They're like, yeah, I get it. You know, and HBO is still relatively small compared to an ABC or a CBS. You know, like the Big Bang Theory is going to have more viewers than Euphoria or or Industry, or whatever it might be. But you know, the CBS brand is not the CBS brand. It's like, oh, well, like that's a basic network. I open it up to watch football or something. And then there's like the voice or whatever it might be, like whatever CBS show exists. So I'm going to watch it. Apple is operating on the level of HBO. And they're saying, we really want to be something where people are like, I buy an Apple phone because I trust that it's good. I buy an Apple MacBook because I trust that it's good. I buy an Apple Watch because I trust that it's accurate. And I subscribe to Apple TV Plus because I assume based on other stuff that it's going to have stuff that I like. That's really difficult to do. And the only way to do that is going slow. And I think that's what Apple is doing. Yeah, I don't foresee a future where you turn on Apple TV Plus and find like old reruns of Gilligan's Island. You know, they're <laughs> they're they're looking for they I think they are looking at like becoming the new HBO. It seems like that's what they're looking for. Which yes. makes sense with kind of Apple's brand savvy. And um, Exactly. But now you were talking earlier when we've been talking about today's show about the various players and something that I've learned today is it really you have to think about the motivation of these various companies because they're not all the same. And and you said a lot of people ask, you know, who's going to survive? 
I guess that assumes that not all of them are going to survive. So I guess my first question is, is that a fair assumption or are companies going to limp along for a long time? And then the second question is, if they don't survive, what happens to all that content? It's a great like legal 101 right there. That was a great, you should do law school with that. <laughs> you said this, but you did not say this. And that yeah. assumes. David's um, a retired attorney, so that, that, that tracks. That, well, yeah. there it is. Yeah, see, yeah. We're, we could all use law school. David, once a month, I kind of go through like, should I go to law school? But it's usually in tune don't, with like don't. a West I'll, Wing I'll tell you right now. clip. Don't. Yeah. Just don't. <laughs> <laughs> I'm always like, could I be a Josh Lyman? The answer is no. Um, so yeah, most... Some of them will not survive. What is happening, as you guys probably are well aware of, but for listeners who might not be, is we are consolidating at an incredibly fast speed. And people think it might be over. They're like, okay, Discovery bought Warner. So like, that's kind of done. You know, uh, Disney bought Fox. That's kind of done. It's, we're not done. There's all these rumors now about like, could Discovery and NBC, you know, merge? And there would be a lot of red tape <laughs> with like, you can't own all these news channels. And there's a lot of issues there. And the FTC in general would be like, please stop. But the consolidation is going to continue. Smaller streaming services like a Crunchyroll or whatever are going to be bought up into bigger streaming services or they're going to exist within bigger companies like Sony. You know, all these things are going to roll up because they think that scale equates to power and, and it kind of does, but not necessarily. And so my assumption is that you'll see companies like an NBC Uni, if I had to put money on it, an NBC Universal go the way of Sony and Lionsgate, which are, the, which are uh, and more so Sony, where Sony looked around, said, there's no way in, uh, in hell that I want to get into the streaming wars. This seems like a total disaster for a lot of these companies involved. And it's going to take years and years and years of a lot of investment for not guaranteed success, for unguaranteed success. Um, and they said, but a lot of these companies need content and they need valuable content. And that's where we come in and we can charge four times what our content's worth. And so- to go along with the colloquial streaming wars term, the colloquial term for a company like Sony has become content arms dealer. It is the idea of like Sony can go out with its TV side and its film side and just strike up deals and just figure out what its what its catalog is worth and charge twice that. I think NBC Universal should go that route. I think unless NBC Universal strikes a strategic third party partnership with like hypothetically like a stars right like let's say nbc universal buys a stars or whatever it might be it's really hard to grow from the ground up which is what we see with peacock so you can say like okay on the one hand nbc universal maybe kill you know kills off peacock buy stars that's their streaming service and they, they buy Lionsgate and they just have stuff go there whatever it might be on the other hand nbc can go Actually, our universal content is really valuable. Our NBC content is really valuable. Our library of content is insanely valuable. Law and Order, all the Real Housewives, whatever it might be, across the board, we're going to license that out to Netflix, to Hulu, which they have. They still have a part in. We, we assume that Disney will buy it out at the end of um, this year, beginning of next year, or two years from now. You know, and they might go. We we just we, we go that route. So I do think you're going to see a lot of them disappear in terms of streaming platforms and their content go elsewhere. It's all going to come down to how long they want to be in this for, and it won't be next year they close stuff down. They have to at least do three, four, five years, you know, to save face. They can't just launch and say streaming is really important, and then five, three years later be like, actually, we goofed. It's not important. Sorry, we spent $4 billion on this. You know, it takes a minute. They'll save face, and then they'll say, it makes more sense strategically for our company to harness the power of our IP and our catalogs by striking lucrative deals that bring in its guaranteed immediate revenue to help us establish further investment in our film production area or whatever it might be like that would be like what the CEO statement is 
Um, and I think you'll see that happen with NBC Uni before any of the other ones. It, might, it won't be for a while, but that is my assumption. Uh, and unless, of course, they strike a, a consolidation, right? Unless you, NBC does join Discovery and all of a sudden you've got HBO Max plus Peacock Ultra, right? Like some service that just has all these names combined. So I think that's what I would predict. I, you're going to see some of them go away. You're going to see some of them merge with others. You're going to see some of them rebrand. Um, but for the most part, most households will have three to four enter- general entertainment streaming services, and the other ones will either be um, sucked up by those four, or they will go back to doing what they do best, which is releasing really strong theatrical movies, creating shows for networks, which will then become creating shows for streaming services, and kind of becoming one of those companies like a Sony. This episode of the Mac Power Users is brought to you by ZocDoc. Find the right doctor right now with ZocDoc. Sign up for free at ZocDoc.com slash MPU. Before you book any brunch, you pour over lists and lists of reviews. So why not do the same when you're booking a doctor's appointment? With ZocDoc, you can see real verified patient reviews to help you find the right doctor in your network and in your neighborhood. ZocDoc is a free app that shows you doctors who are patient-reviewed, take your insurance, and are available when you need them. You can find every specialist under the sun, whether you're trying to straighten those teeth, fix an achy back, get that mole checked out, or anything else. ZocDoc has you covered. The mobile app is as easy as ordering a ride to a restaurant or getting delivery to your house. Search, find, and book doctors with just a few taps. You can find and review local doctors, read verified patient reviews from real people who made real appointments, and now when you walk into that doctor's office, you're all set to see someone in your network who gets you. So find the doctor that is right for you and book an appointment in person or remotely that works for your schedule. Every month, millions of people use ZocDoc. It's their go-to whenever they need to find a doctor or a quality doctor. We've been through that same dance in my house where we're looking for a doctor. We get the list from the insurance, but it's not up to date. And we just go to ZocDoc. You go to ZocDoc, you know they're in the insurance, you know they're well-reviewed, and you can get started. Anybody who needs to find a doctor, they should check out ZocDoc. So go to ZocDoc.com slash MPU and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then start your search for a top-rated doctor today. Many are available within 24 hours. That's ZocDoc.com slash MPU. And that URL one more time, ZocDoc.com slash MPU. And our thanks to ZocDoc for their support of the Mac Power users and all of Relay FM. Julia, one thing we like to do before we let people go is talk about some favorite uh, apps and services that you rely on uh, to get your work done each week. So what are some things that you turn to? I have a few that I really love. Smart Tasks is basically just a list organization app. Um, it's I use the free version because I don't like to spend money on apps, which becomes a whole thing. I, I realize like developers out there all of a sudden were like, <laughs> but uh, I, I don't like to, and it, and it does its job well enough that I can use that with uh, my Gcal, my Google Cloud, and it's totally fine. Um, I like Just Watch. Just Watch is um, crucial for me with my job because it's the only way that I know where anything is streaming ever yes. in, in, in a specific country. 
Um, like actually just last week I wanted to restart Hannibal, which is like top three show for me of all time. I rewatch it once or twice a year and it was on Netflix. The last time I rewatched it opened up Netflix and wasn't there. And I had to just watch. I was like, where is it? Turns out it's on Hulu if anyone's interested. Um, and so I use that daily because I also, for my job, when I'm doing research stuff, I, I pull from just watch, uh, and I use that all the time. Yeah. I, I had no idea that existed. I, I used to, there used to be one called, can, can I stream it or can you stream it? Yeah. But I, I didn't know Just Watch was there. I'm, I'm yeah, bookmarking it's, it right now. It's fantastic. I've got their iPhone app on my phone. And I don't think I've ever even thought about watching something that it doesn't know about. I mean, I'm looking at their website, and they say they know about 200,000 titles. Chances are what you're looking for is going to be be covered. And it shows you the app and your availability. And it is, I mean, I, I, I don't know how they pull their data. It seems like an amazing project. But it is, uh, yeah, it's crucial this day and age, especially if you're like a lot of us and you have quite a few streaming services that you you pay for or that you dip in and out of. You know, that's something that I signed up for AMC Plus or whatever for a while to watch Better Call Saul. Now that's done. I've let it lapse. But um, just watches is, it's like the modern day uh, TV guide in some ways. You can find what you want to watch and where it is. Exactly. It's exactly right. I, I love their team too. They're a small team, but they're really great. And I keep DMing them um, with a request to <laughs> turn on notifications for when um, the big short hits any streaming platform because it's never available. And they're very fun. I, I love them. I wish them nothing but the greatest success. Teeter, I'm the only person or I guess one of 1 million people, which is not a lot of people when I'm about to say what's next, um, who uses the Netflix gaming app. And Teeter is just a really dumb fun like get the whole ball into the hole type game okay uh that i play either in the bathroom or just with um when i have like really strong anxiety attacks i play teeter and i just it calms me down so i, I use that um quite often i mean notion i use notion on my ipad i use notion on my iphone i use notion on my macbook do, do you use notion to manage a team or do you just use it as an individual um, both. So I have okay. one for a team that I uh, I have for um, an unannounced project that I'm working on. So the teamwork goes there. And then I also just use it for individual stuff. Like when I was in the process of incorporating company, I was like throwing a bunch of stuff in there and, and looking at, you know, costs for, for this project coming out. And so Notion, I just use on everything. Also, Notion just is like, I enjoy designing it. Like I enjoy playing around with Notion yeah. boards and like going to Tumblr for inspiration and Pinterest and so I, I feel like a lot of people like like I don't know about your you guys, but Notion for me is just a must. If you ever get curious to look at alternatives, um, mm -hmm. Craft is a really good option. It's a native Mac app that is a block editor like Notion. You may want to check that oh. one out someday. But I mean, good to know. if you like Notion, stick with it. But I mean that that's an interesting. People seem to like those two apps. They're both very similar, but but that's the native Mac one. You know, Mac uh, actually it's native iPad and. There's a version on the Mac that's the iPad version, but it's it's very good. Good to know. Um, and then the last app, I actually haven't used this app in a month and a half because it's been so disgustingly gross in New York City. It's like New York City in the summer becomes a swampland. Um, but I'm a runner. And so Flush is just great because if you have to use the bathroom, which runners will appreciate, it's uh, just an app that shows you bathrooms in like New York City. <laughs> just like here's Perfect. bathrooms. And you're like, so great. Can you like, rate sometimes... them? That'd be the best part. You're like, this is I a clean one. I think you can. I think you actually can rate them. I mean, like half the time they're like Barnes and Noble. It's like there's a Barnes and Noble. But um, yeah. 
I really, if anyone out there is, um, I'm a long distance runner. If anyone out there is a runner uh, and runs outside, which I tend to do in the fall, early winter, and then spring, um, it's absolutely phenomenal as as an app. Yeah. (laughs) It's great for bike riding too. You know, you run into the same problem. It's like, uh, am I going to go knock on someone's door? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I remember reading the story of Robin Williams knocking on somebody's door in San Francisco because he had to make a phone call back before cell phones. <laughs> yeah. It's like, uh, hi, can I use your phone? Also, I'm famous. Yeah. Well, uh, this was a great download for us, uh, Julia, just to kind of get an idea of, cause Steve and I have all these questions and we're, we are not the people to answer them. And, uh, you coming on today really helped us understand it a lot. I, I never really thought about Apple doing this for the purpose of taste making, but you know, I think, I think you're onto something there. So uh, I'm curious how this all plays out. We're going to be following you uh, gang. If you want to learn more about this, if this is interesting to you, there's a podcast for you on Relay FM called downstream. Uh, you can also find uh, Julia at loudmouth, Julia dot, uh, that's your Twitter loudmouth. Julia. Mm-hmm. I love that, that handle um, uh, parrotanalytics.com and uh, on puck news. So we'll put links for all that in the, in the show notes and uh, anywhere else people should go to find you, Julia. No, that's it. Thank you guys for having me on. This was a true honor and a blast. Oh, thanks for joining us. We are the Mac Power Users. You can find us over at Relay.fm slash MPU. Thank you to our sponsors today, 1Password, Text Expander, Indeed, and ZocDoc. And we'll see you next time. <laughs>